Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, a podcast to help the church read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. What is crackalacking, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. And we got a quite a show today. Boy, do we. We have the letter to the Romans today. Yeah. Paul's heftiest letter. Yeah, this is really exciting. Well, for me, so I'm the guy I studied under primarily was definitely a, a Pauline scholar. He liked Paul. Paul was his boy. And so I'm actually much more comfortable with Paul. So actually, I think we did like a series on Romans like a year and a half ago. On this like, podcast, yeah, you did. it was just me though. I was flying solo. It was back in the day when things were sad and lonely. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think it was Romans. Anyway, I did a lot of Paul. I, I, if you've been following us for a while, you know it. Well, I've never done a gospel <laughs> like series yeah. before. <laughs> you've you've slept since then. We've had Thanksgiving. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Oh yeah, it was great. Ate too much, slept a lot. Yeah, great. It was weird having multiple days off in a row. I ate pumpkin pie for breakfast. No pecan pie for breakfast on friday and saturday last week and i have no regrets i feel great about it. pecan pie is so hit and miss for me it's like it's just sometimes i think it's awesome and then other times like why is this disgusting like why is this gross we add chocolate chips and bourbon to ours so it is it is next level bourbon it's it's out of this world yeah you just replace the extract with a lot of bourbon (laughs) i'm not so can you taste the bourbon yeah I mean, it's, it doesn't have any sting to it. Like the booze is all cooked out, but uh, it's okay. definitely like, instead of like a nice vanilla note that you would taste in a cookie or something like that, you get a Did you ever have like this rum, rum balls as a kid? Those rum cake balls? Did rum cake that? balls? Yeah. No, but that sounds lovely. See, as a kid, my family would make them and I think they put a lot of rum in them. As a kid, I wanted a, a cake, like a cake ball, but didn't know it was rum. So I just popped one back one time and it was just like the grossest thing ever. So were now they, I'm like scarred for life. <laughs> are they not cooked? Like, I, Dude, mean, I don't, I don't know, but I remember are they still boozy as a, the- as a kid thinking, wow, this is disgusting. This is not a cake ball. And my stepmom being like, ah, chase the, Oh crap. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they actually had alcohol on it or not, but you ever let your kids just have a taste of, uh, an adult beverage just to see what they'll, what they'll oh, do. With my it. dad did that to me when I was a kid. He like, I remember sitting in the backseat of a car, this is, you know, back in the day when this was less frowned upon. Yeah, um, right. And I think we're coming back from like golf where I just watched. I was like five or something like that. And he's like, I was like, dad, can I try your beer? And he's like, sure. And regrets. Yeah, as a, sure. As a five-year-old. If you, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it seems a little irresponsible, but if you're worried about your kids sneaking into your liquor cabinet or something, just give, give them a little, a little But also like, it. you know, I feel like, you know, in Europe they do it kind of right where alcohol is not some big there's no, no taboo. Yeah, yeah it's right. just like you see this 11 year old with like a small glass of wine, and it's it's all gravy. Yeah, it's actually like frowned upon to get drunk because it's like, wow, you can't control your alcohol. This very drink. normal thing that we do all the time. You're yeah, yeah. you're gonna go. You suck at it. Yeah, you sure. can't drink right. It's not how you how you're supposed to. <laughs> um, do it. And I'm sure they drank in Rome back in Paul's day. Transitions. The uh, Transitions. The, fir- the first miracle. <laughs> We believe in it. We're happy yeah, it happened. That's right. So the Greek word of the day. Um, Dikaiosini. Yeah, or dikaiosune. Um, sure. Depending sure. on what Greek you If you're is. an Erasmian or a real Greek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's fight. <laughs> I, love, I love Erasmus versus Luther. Yeah, he owned Luther for sure. His yeah. Greek just was, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the author of the letter to the Romans is Paul. And nobody. Nobody. Nobody disagrees with this. It's not a controversial thing. Other parts of the Bible we're going to get into where people have no idea who wrote it. Paul, it's not a it's not a mystery here for Romans. Yeah, and so uh, dating this, um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, 
I think the best theory out there is that it was written in the 50s. Um, and there's some evidence for this. So I think it's important to kind of understand some historical background, though, for the situation in Rome, right? So we have, obviously, the death of Christ around the year 30 AD, um, the conversion of Paul, you know, shortly after that. And so Paul was doing his thing for about 20 years before Romans written. So Paul, you know, the Council of Jerusalem probably already happened at this point. Paul was, you know, cutting his chops um, against the, you know, circumcision party and all this stuff. But in Rome in particular, even before Peter went there early on, because I think in Acts, Peter went there in like the 30s or 40s, right? 40s, maybe 40s. Anyway, um, there was like 12 synagogues already in Rome. Right. So even though Rome was largely Gentile, there was still a Jewish presence there. And so we don't really know how the faith got started in Rome. Um, it could have been that there was Jewish converts that went back to Rome to the synagogues. It could have been that St. Peter went to evangelize in like the 40s. Um, either way, we know that the faith ultimately did get started and that the church was pretty active. But we have this dude named Claudius. We have yeah, Emperor Claudius here. So when you're when you're new atheist, when you, when your friend who reads like way too much Richard Dawkins tells you, <laughs> well, we don't have any evidence for Jesus outside of the New Testament, you can be like, well, actually, on this podcast, I learned about the historian Suetonius, and Suetonius describes the expulsion of the Jews around this time, in, in roughly the year forty to sixty A.D., as a part of the as a result of the disturbances at the instigation of a certain Crestus. Yeah, and uh, it's pretty clear he's talking about Jesus. Uh, Christ there. So there were, there were riots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Claudius expels all the Jews from Rome. When Claudius dies, ironically, it's Nero who lifts this uh, prohibition, and the Jews start to trickle back into Rome yeah. to to worship. But we do get this this window because we have to remember that the Jews included Jewish Christians, right? Right. There, there was no distinction at the time between. Uh, non-Jewish and, or sorry, non-Christian Jews and, and especially Jewish Especially Jews. <laughs> in the eyes of the Romans who just right. viewed the thing as some strange Jewish offshoot or aberration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what happens was you have a group of Gentile Christians who are left behind in Rome, right? So they're, they're, they form uh, this kind of, this micro community and they start, you know, doing things a certain way. And then you have the Christian Jews come back to Rome and there was art, there was apparent tension that formed, right? And so Paul's kind of coming in amongst this tension between these the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, right? And so when you read, especially, you know, uh, one through eleven of Romans, one through twelve, um, you know, you kind of you kind of see this back and forth of like Paul like being like, "Yo, you chill out. Hey, you over there, you chill out, right?" Um, and so there's some back and forth there. So just historically, I think it's important to know that kind of background, because I think it helps Romans make a lot more sense. Yeah, so let's just go through the content here. You have the introduction in chapter 1. Paul introduces himself as an apostle entrusted with the gospel, the good news that God is righteous. And uh, this brings us to defining our word of the day, which we talked about earlier, but I don't, think we, I don't think we actually defined. So, dikaiosini is, uh, <laughs> is, is God's righteousness, and... Uh, I mean, the simplest way. Right, to well, so it's righteousness or justice, not yeah. God's necessarily. Yeah, it's, that's, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, so if you're going to apply this word to God, 
it's going to mean in Romans, basically, God's covenant faithfulness, sure. God's willingness to keep his promises. If you imagine God as a kind of cosmic uh, judge, God is going to always make the right judgments. When right. people are summoned to his court, he's not going to show partiality or favoritism to rich or poor Jew or Gentile. He's going to judge with equity. So uh, yeah. that's that, our word of the day. Here. Yeah, and I think, you know, going connecting it to the Hebrew, uh, sedek, right? Is the sedek is that Hebrew oh, word yeah. for, for yeah, justice? Right. And that's where uh-huh. we get that definition. So in the Old Testament, to be righteous was to, to live by the covenant, right? Well, to live according with the covenant, right? So when Paul uses it in the New Testament, particularly Romans, he, he knows of this, the background and the weight of this word righteousness within the Old Testament, right? But now he has to make the transition of what, what does it mean to be righteous according to the new covenant? Yeah. Right? So yeah, yeah. That's, that's that transition there. Because um, it's, conform, it's conformity to the standard or norm, right? The standard equal is the covenant, right? Um, so the covenant's the measuring bar in the Old Testament. And it's still the measuring bar in the New Testament. The bar's just been raised. So he introduces himself, and he talks about how humanity is kind of doomed without the gospel. Uh, He talks about how all people, Jews and Gentiles, have worshipped creature rather than creator. They've followed their lusts, their passions. He quotes wisdom. Yeah, yeah, great little commercial for the book of wisdom there. Wisdom, so... I haven't been, can't, the wisdom hasn't been in my Bible. It's been in my Apocrypha for a couple of years, but it hasn't <laughs> been in my Bible very long. I think wisdom is my new, new quote unquote, favorite Dude, book of the Bible. Wisdom and Syriac has some juicy steak in it, man. Mm-hmm. It's, it can mm-hmm. punch you in all the right places sometimes. <laughs> anyway. Steak. <laughs> now, now I'm hungry. Mm. Uh, a nice filet mignon. <laughs> Uh, Israel is uh, not, so he's not just talking about the Gentiles here who have followed their lusts and their passions. Israel's been guilty of it too in that they had the Torah, they had the law of God, and yet they failed to live up to its demands in some pretty significant ways. But the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus came to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins and to share his new resurrected life with us. So in Jesus, by believing in Jesus and sharing in his life, we too can share in that righteousness that's proper to God belonging to God's family, all of that stuff. Yeah, and before we go any further, it's important to, we've talked about this on the show probably a few times now, but it's been a long time. Uh, so this, the word faith within Romans and with Pauline corpus in general, uh, Greek pistis, right? Um, so it's really important to understand that there's really three different like ways that faith is used within Romans, within Paul in particular. Um, the most obvious is like the intellectual consent to the resurrection of Jesus, right? You tell me Jesus rose from the dead and I will believe in it. That's right. one aspect of yeah. faith. And so unfortunately, a lot of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, and probably actually a lot of Catholics, think that that's just that's what faith is, hard stop. It's an intellectual consent. Tell me right? what the creed is and I'll um, sign off. Yeah, on it. exactly. So, But when the word pistis, the, you know, the word faith in Greek, really has a few different other ones. Because we also have this idea of... Um, trusting that God is faithful. So there's an element of trust in it, right? So um, to be to have faith in somebody means I'm gonna, I trust that you're doing something, right? So that's kind of the, the next deeper level. So you have the intellectual consent, then you have the trust part of faith, right? And then lastly, you have this fidelity, right? Or faithfulness, or and that's really obedience, right? So the obedience of faith, Paul will say elsewhere, right? So it, it's not merely intellectual consent, even though it starts there. If, if you believe intellectually, then you need to be faithful, right? And then, because God is faithful, right? You can, you can believe that God has sent Israel to Egypt, but if you don't get on the train going out of Egypt, like right. you, you have not completed your faithfulness. Yeah, exactly. Your faith has not meant much. Yeah, so, so, for, so it's, you know, it's the sweaty work of, of love that Paul uses. Um, and, and, uh, was that, <laughs> not a euphemism. No, <laughs> I, think, I think he literally, that's the literal translation. Yep. Um, I think, is it Colossians? No. 
Thessalonians. Anyway, elsewhere, um, he usually were the sweaty work of love. So <laughs> there's, it's just, I love that phrase, the sweaty work of love. Um, we're getting into theology of the body here. If that's we're not careful. right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this idea of faithfulness um, is not merely an intellectual consent, right? It's Paul is assuming the deeper meaning. Um, and for his, his audience, they kind of know that inherently, right? And who's the prototypical example of this kind of faithfulness for Paul in Romans? It's Abraham. Yeah. So Abraham was declared righteous, this having right standing before God on the basis of his faith, before he did anything especially... Before the snip snip. Before the old snip snap, <laughs> as Michael Scott once said. Snip snap, snip snap. <laughs> so he, uh, before he did anything particularly, uh, he believed God when God takes him out to the stars at night and says, hey, if you follow me, your family is going to be as many and manifold and mighty as the stars in the heavens. Abraham believes it before he leaves his hometown, before his circumcision, before he does anything that demonstrates that he belongs to God's new covenant family. Therefore, Paul says, these people who believe in Jesus' resurrection, though they haven't seen it, and though they haven't been resurrected themselves, and though they haven't kept the law up to this point, can have and share in the faith of Abraham. Yeah, that's when you get the beautiful image of the olive olive tree, right? So, and the whole grafting and all that stuff that Paul talks about in that section. Making a new humanity in chapters four through six. Uh, oh, sorry, the, I skipped. No, no, no. You, 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 <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get to the tree. Um, but uh, Adam is contrasted with Jesus. Sure. The Jesus becoming the new Adam. That is representative of all humanity, and himself fulfills the vocation of Israel as if Israel herself were totally faithful to God's covenant and allows us to share in his life. So baptism is the way that that happens for Paul, to share in Christ's death and resurrection. You're buried with Christ in baptism, and then when they raise you up out of the water, this is a little commercial for full immersive baptism. Dude, uh, which, I, I love when churches do that at the Easter Vigil. Let's let's go down to the lake and that's make right. it happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, and sometimes you have these giant holy water fonts, right? And you kind of feel bad for people being baptized. You're like, man, you must be really uncomfortable. Like, you're just wet the rest of the liturgy, but it's beautiful. Like, you know, you got dunked. Um, uh, nearby us, uh, St. Thomas More and St. Yeah. Louis both have fully immersive uh, baptismal fonts. Dope. Very cool. Dope. Very cool. I feel bad for the priest's soggy socks for the rest well, of the Well, have him wear waders. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that, that makes the imagery of dying and rising with Christ most clear when you have somebody fully going under the water. That's right. Um, even a little baby, just plug their nose and shoot them down. That's there. right. Just whoop. <laughs> The uh, next section in chapter 7 through 8 is on the law and the spirit. So contrasting the law with the spirit, the law demonstrating that sin exists and that people are guilty of it. And, and that it doesn't save you. And Yeah, just by virtue of knowing what the law is, this doesn't empower you to keep it in any special way. But the spirit being poured out on these new Christians empowers them to fulfill the law of love, which is the end ultimately of all the commandments. Right. Uh, then we come to bum, bum, bum. Chapters 9 through 11. It's technically not the climax, but it's a very important part. Yep, yep. And uh, Paul's basic point here is that if the Jews at large haven't received Jesus and don't believe, how can we keep going on and saying that Paul, uh, that God is righteous and faithful and keeping his covenant and all that when all these people rejected his son? And he goes back and tells us that there was basically always a faithful remnant of believing Jews throughout the Old Testament. Not all Israel is Israel, which means that some of Israel was Israel. They yeah. were actually faithful to God's commandment. And uh, if you want a great a new, some New Testament examples of this, um, Simeon and, sure. uh, and Anna in the temple waiting for yeah. the consolation of Israel, faithful Jews that they were. Yeah. Scott Hahn and his... Uh 
he has this series called Letter and Spirit. Um, and it's not just him. It's, it's kind of like an academic journal for Catholic theology. Anyway, uh, and I for, there's like 12 of them now. But in one of them, you can Google it, Letter and Spirit. Uh, Letter and Spirit um, Israel, you probably find it. But anyway, he has a great breakdown of this section. Um, I don't know if it's him or another scholar, but it's within Letter and Spirit. Um, and how Paul breaks down how um, the part in this section, the reason Gentiles had to be saved is to save the rest of Israel, right? The, the lost tribes. Anyway, so Letter and Spirit. Israel, odds are you'd find it. Sorry, I didn't come prepared with the exact <laughs> one. Give it a Google. You'll that's find right, it. That's right. That's uh, right. So how can we say God is faithful if, all of, if not all of Israel, but the majority of Israel has rejected God's Messiah here? Well, we've seen this thing happen before throughout Israel's history. There is always a faithful remnant who did, in fact, believe. And God is not done with Israel. And in fact, her rejection of his son opens up in a strange way an opportunity for Gentiles to be grafted into this tree. And this is the tree that you were right. referring to earlier. The olive shoot, the wild olive shoot that was grafted in. Yeah, yeah. Talking about how the, these new branches ought not to be jealous, or ought not to be, um, I guess, lording it over the right. old branches because God was the one doing the grafting and the snipping and the pruning all along. That's right. And they're still a very, just one branch. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not the roots. Mm-hmm. So these new Gentiles will be grafted in. This will make some of Israel jealous. It will make them envious, and uh, it'll it'll harden their hearts to some degree. But Paul says one of the coolest and wildest and most confusing things at the end of this section, which is to say, all of Israel is going to be saved. Look, guys, I know this is really bad that so many of the Jews rejected Jesus, but eventually they're all going to be saved. And that's one reason why chapters 9 through 11 does not teach double predestination. Bum, bum, bum. Chase, what is double predestination all about? Heresy. Yeah, well, it's that's a heresy. The, this is the Calvinist, well, high Calvinist, technically. Jean Calvin. Uh, um, so as Catholics, we actually do believe in predestination, right? Um, and in fact, if you don't, you're a heretic. Um <laughs> But double predestination is this idea that um, God has a lever and you're either going up or down and you have really no say in the matter. He's, he's pulled the lever at the beginning of time. Right. Um, he's chosen which, are, which people are going to go to hell and which people are going to go to heaven and that's, that's it. Yeah. And so it, and it helps, you know, to remember that um, while God does know where we are going to end up, it's, it's, it's because he views time outside of it, right? So it's not that he is forcing you against your will to go up or down, but rather he does know. So that's predestination, right? He knows like he's God. He knows who's going to be saved, who's going to be condemned, but it doesn't mean he, you don't, he's not inviting you to cooperate, right? Or that there's not a, a element of your cooperation and rejecting, right? Um, so that's the, it's really, really nuanced, but so predestination, God knows, right? Double predestination is you have no say in the matter. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that's, that's right. That's that's the you don't in any sense cooperate. You're like, which is so hard to uphold if you just read the Bible. <laughs> right. Yeah. God, God invites his people to do uh, this and that to step out in faith all the time, and they have a choice to make. I mean, you right. you're you're almost never given the sense that they are compelled against their will to right to the obey him or disobey him. Yeah. The only time it gets really tricky is some of the, like the quote unquote dark passages of the Old Testament, right? When you're talking about how God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and stuff like that. Um, so those, and that, we're not going to get into that right now. Um, but, um, but it's one of those things where like, for, if you read the Bible canonically, as in the whole, and not just zooming in on one part, yeah, it's very obvious that God invites, that Jesus invites, right? Yeah. I mean, even the rich young man, Jesus says like, hey, 
come on. Yeah. Well, when, when I was uh, in my youth group growing up, all of the smart people had kind of Calvinistic leanings. Gosh, so for so for a while, I was kind of taken in with this idea. And I think if you read Romans nine through eleven in isolation, apart from the book as a whole, you could come away probably thinking that yeah, God kind of just arbitrarily chooses sure. who He's going to send to heaven and who's going to send to hell. But this whole bit—that's why this bit with Paul's uh, universal salvation of the Jews is so important. Throughout Israel's history, you have people whose hearts were hardened. The wilderness generation is kind of the prototypical example yeah. who grumbled against God in the wilderness. The core, and their, the core rebellion, right? Their, I mean. whole, their whole generation had to die and all right. of that stuff. Uh, Pharaoh's another example. God ja- opened up the ground and sucked them down. <laughs> Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. These, though, have to be read not in terms of like individuals that God saved or damned, but like the prosperity of nations, according to Malachi 1. That's where that uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated comes from. So if you're thinking about how can it be that at the end of time all Israel will be saved, um, I don't know. Imagine like an analogy with the good thief on the cross who uh, presumably up until that very point had rejected Christ and then at the end said, yeah, I want in. And there also are different, a few different interpretive options, right? He's not saying every single Israelite that ever existed will be in heaven, right? Like you said, it's it's speaking almost nationally, right? Yeah. As in the body of Israel, which which almost again that letter in spirit with Scott Hahn um, talking about how that's be, the reason all of Israel will be saved is because now we're inviting the Gentiles, who ten of the twelve tribes got you know, spread away into, yep, right? Yep. So how are all, how are somebody from all 12 tribes, even book of revelation gets into this, right? Members and, and representatives from all 12 tribes of Israel have been saved. The, the 44, uh, Elders. 144,000. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep, um, yeah. And so, so multiple one, of 12. Again, now could, could you take it at a very face value, literal, every single Israelite could be saved. Technically. Yes. I don't think that one has as much weight if you just read the old Testament. Um, but I really enjoy it, what they do in letter and spirit and, and just kind of Paul, because the whole point of that section is is humbling the Israelites, but also uh, reminding the Gentiles that they, they, they Israel is needed, right? So if Paul's not just saying, "Hey, Israelites, don't worry, you're 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 saved. Don't worry about anything." Just, just no, abso- absolutely. Yeah. Uh, also in Romans, he also says, "If such a thing were possible, I would wish myself condemned for their sake." Like he's really torn up about the fact that uh, most of his kinsmen have not right. taken the lead in following Jesus here. Yeah. So then, yeah, after that section, we get into kind of 12 through 16, which is essentially just gospel living, right? So I think this is the, you know, Ryan and I were talking, I think most people get tripped up with 1 through 11, early 12, as in like the dense theology, the what the junk is he talking about? But 12 through 16 is really, if all of these things are true, this is how we live our life now, yep. right? So they're exhortations to live a certain way, right? Um, so, you know, 12 through 16, once again, I don't think it's overly dense. Um, it's beautiful, and it's something you should really zoom in on, um, but I don't know necessarily. It's it's not theologically trippy or anything. Well, because the because the Jesus has has made these two formerly disparate groups one that is Jews and Gentiles. Now that they all have to live together under one roof called the church, uh, they should probably start stop picking at each other over who's keeping kosher law and who's yeah, getting right. circumcised and yeah. um, who's following the law to this degree. Because the whole time up at, to this point in Romans, he's been saying that these Gentiles can be justified on the basis of their faith. Uh, the extent to which they keep Jewish law now is not so important. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, yeah, that's a you know a bird's eye view of the letter. Now, there's there's you know one or two parts that we you know I Brian and I were just like we wanted to zoom in on because we we like um, the first one. 
uh, being the introduction. Um, oh, I'm glad you went back to that. I totally yeah, forgot we were going to do yeah. that. Bit. <laughs> um, well, so we got some time left. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, if you've ever read Romans uh, closely, um, you, you know that, you know, the prologue is in verses at one through seven. And so I'm going to make the case and Ryan's going to try to pop the bubble here. I'm going to throw um, a curveball at you. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to make the case that Paul in the, in the first seven verses is essentially taking sucker punch after sucker punch at Caesar. Right. And, um, and doing it in such a way to where they could read this letter out loud without fearing persecution. Right. Oh, uh, but at the same time, anybody who knows would say, Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. Caesar, not that important. Yes. Tell us. Yeah. Cause we have to remember, you know, Caesar worship was a thing. They got a lot of Christians killed. So in, in, in the Roman cultist, uh, cult, um, the, Caesar became the son of God post-mortem, right? So what happened was um, once the Caesar died, he entered the divine, right? He became a, a you know, a quasi-God, if you will. Um, and so what that, what that then meant was that if you were the son of Caesar, that would make you the son of a God, right? Um, and so when you read, uh, the, you know, Paul 1 through 7, let's read, you know, one verse at a time here. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. few things stand out. So apostle, apostolos, is not a word that was invented by the, the early Christians, right? It was already it was a word used. And it really, it was, it, was a, it was a word used for a royal messenger. So a messenger from Caesar or some kind of other royal figure, right? So instantly, you get a royal theme, right? Where, where Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. I'm a royal messenger of, of who? Of, of God. And he says the euangelion theu, right? So the good news of God. And you probably heard this before, but euangelion, once again, not a word that the Christians made up. It was a word that the Romans would have used whenever they conquered a new land, won a battle, or um, a birth of, uh, of an heir. So it's euangelion Rome. The good news of Rome was what was mostly proclaimed when they conquered a new land, when they beat a battle. But Paul is saying, I'm a royal messenger for the good news of God, right? And so instantly you have this, this you know, slight sucker punch here of, I'm telling you about the good news, the true good news, right? Not this arbitrary good news of Rome. Um, and then what does he say? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So once again, he's saying, I'm not just making this up. This has been going back for a while. I have the authority of scriptures and the prophets behind me. The next verse, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh. So once again, the true son of God, right? Not Caesar, this actual son of God, his son, one son singular. Um, and he's descended from David, obviously a royal figure, right? And so then he goes on and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So once again, Caesar was made divine post-mortem, Right. But what's Jesus's proof of his divinity? He's not dead. He was raised from the dead. He now lives eternally glorified in his resurrection body. So Jesus's proof is in the pudding, right? He, he, was, he was raised from the dead. Caesar, you have no proof that he's God. It's just an arbitrary claim that they made, right? And then they're like, hey, worship me now, right? Um, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So once again, apostleship. Uh, to bring about the obedience of faith, there's obedience of faith, for the sake of his name among all the nations. So the true good news is, Rome, you think you have good news by conquering what you do. The true good news is now we go out to spread the true kingdom of God from his true son 
throughout the world. So just punch, 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 punch. Caesar, you suck. Yeah. Now, Chase, I'm a modern, enlightened American reader here, and I just have a problem with all of this monarchy talk. <laughs> that's my NPR voice. Do you guys, that's do you guys like that? That's, that's my NPR You should start voice. talking like that more. <laughs> Today, we're going to do a four-hour special oh on um, homeless jazz musicians and their issues with their fathers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Now I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah. So, uh, hey, hey, Chase, that that sounds cool, man. But uh, I uh, I don't live under a monarchy, and as far as I know, the president that I voted for or didn't vote for doesn't command my assent here. Like, is this even relevant for today? Like, cool, they were thumbing their nose at the emperor, but we don't live in that kind of a world. Like, isn't yeah. that just an artifact of history? Yeah. So I think um, this can be read spiritually um, in in so far as. You, we each have something that we want to worship besides God, right? And we each have something that we're fearful of giving up to, in order to worship the proper God, right? Because remember, early Christians, worship Caesar or die, right? Um, and so for us, we have to ask ourselves, like, are, what are you worshiping above God, right? And are you willing to die in some way for the sake of witnessing to the true God, right? Like, what are you too afraid of to give up right now? Um, and so, I mean, this could be a lot, but also like as Americans, you know, so many people today worship politics, like <laughs> politics right. is the yeah. thing they care about most. Yeah. Right. Uh -huh. Um, because they don't have God. Yeah. Right. And so this applies almost more to them than it did to, to the Romans and the Roman Christians. Right. Cause while Caesar was important in Rome, um, you know, especially for the, the, the Christian community at the time, it's like, yeah, he's important, but like, he's not, he's not God. So we have our we have the emphasis in the right syllable, right? Um, and so it's one of those things where I don't think people have the emphasis in the right syllable anymore, right? So I think this is almost more relevant, even though it's not a monarchy. Um, yeah, now that people have more say in who they're subjected to, uh, how, how much more should we put in perspective the fact that all governmental judicial power is on loan from God? Right. And like the Supreme Court today deliberating about abortion, like one day all of those folks are going to have to stand before God and say, here's what I did. Yeah. You know, here's the kind of law that I set down for the country. So, right. yeah, no, anti-imperial theology in Romans and throughout the scriptures is always chef's kiss. It's That's always, right. yeah, it's yeah, always yeah. very timely. Well, one thing is, and Paul says elsewhere, like, hey, and Jesus says, give to Caesar unto Caesar. Right. And Paul says... Even you know, here in the book of Romans, let yeah. every person be subject to the governing authorities, but because there is no authority except from God right. and those that exist have been established by God. Yeah. And so if he's writing this under Nero, um, you know, yeah. that's, a, that's a gut check moment there for a lot of folks, I think. Right. Well, and, and, you know, kind of wrapping up here is uh, one of the things that we have to remember about this in general, and Aquinas will say, is, you know, ultimately, as long as they're not asking you to sin, you should obey whoever's over authority over you, right? Aquinas says, obviously, if they ask you to sin in some way, you should say no, right? But even Aquinas, like really randomly, will get into what's what, what are good grounds for like civil war kind of thing. And you can tell like Aquinas is like, dude, don't do it. Like bend over backwards to, to avoid that, right? Yeah. Even if the king is an awful human being, like for Aquinas, king, right? Yeah. Um, you don't, you just obey, right? I mean, do do everything in your power to avoid killing and unsatisfied bloodshed. Like you should be obedient. And, and he'll quote Jesus, he'll quote Paul, um, and so I think a lot of times people want to resort to that kind of like dramatic, 
you know, revolt or dramatic, especially in today's culture. We wanted this like overturn of the establishment for the sake of our well, views. Everybody really likes Romans 13 until the guy that you didn't vote for gets in <laughs> right. office. And then they're like, ah, let's yeah. not worry about yeah. that so much anymore. Yeah. Right? So it, unless it, you know, it's one of those things as Christians, um, obedience is, is first, right? Um, now don't get me wrong. It, and once again, Aquinas will say, but that shouldn't lead you to sin, right? Like don't sin. Um, but at the same time, if it's not a salvation issue, then, you know, move on with your life and worry about your soul. Um, anyway, we're not trying to get political. <laughs> we're, we're trying to get political. We're always trying to get political, but that's not true. partisan. We, yeah, we will not endorse and we do not care about your favorite candidate on Catholics with Bibles. <laughs> I kind of care, but I won't talk about it. <laughs> it, it. So far as the show is concerned, yeah, we that's do right. not care. That's right. I'm an yeah. independent. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Um, well, that, yeah, we barely scratched the surface, but that's okay. Um, some commentaries. One of my favorites, uh, Scott Hahn has a commentary on Romans um, from Catholic, uh, Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. Um, I think it's great. Uh, and then Michael Gorman, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, another bomb one. It's a commentary on all of Paul's corpus, but he has a giant section on Romans, obviously. So, If you've ever tried to read commentaries before, you know that they can be a little clunky, a little bit dry. A great introduction to the Book of Romans is J.R.D. Kirk's Unlocking Romans, which is uh, takes kind of a narrative approach, doesn't get too bogged down in linguistics and history and all that. So great little primer for somebody who's studying it for the first time. If you really want to deep dive James Dunn's commentary in the Word series, Jimmy, old Jimmy Dunn yeah. has a, has a really terrific so, one. So your, your two will kind of be the bookends. My two are kind of in the middle. So like, uh, I think Scott Hahn's commentary on Romans is like middle of the road. Kind yeah. Of. It's kind of flirting with academic, academic, you know, deepness without, but while at the same time being very readable, Gorman's that next step up where it's pretty academic. He's going to get into some Greek. He's going to get into some debates and whatever. Yep. Um, so anyway, Check those out if you want to read more, which you should, because it's yeah. awesome. Things distinctive about Romans, it is St. Paul's longest letter. It's, yeah. It's, it's his letter that's probably going to take <laughs> Which is you. literally the only reason it's first. <laughs> They're yeah. like, that's the longest one. Let's put it first. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's kind of a foundation for the rest, I suppose. That's right. Well, all right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time. God bless. Hey, y'all. Thanks for coming on down to Catholics with Bibles. Next week, we are going to be discussing Paul's St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So if you've ever read Corinthians before, you know there was some wild and wacky stuff going on in that church in Corinth. We're going to unpack it for you and show you how to study it in a more deep fashion. See you next time.